Hey gang, so uh, as a lot of you guys know, uh, the show is recorded earlier in the day, but I held it so uh, I could give you guys my thoughts on two things, the State of the Union and then some of the races there in Texas as uh, the first primary of the midterms is now underway, at least in a major state with races that matter. Let's start with the State of the Union. Uh, full disclosure, I did not see all of it. I watched clips, but I did catch the final 45 minutes live. So largely what I missed was the uh, Ukraine stuff and and some of the COVID stuff. The The reviews that I will take from Twitter and some of the commentary classes that that was the strongest part. So when I say what I'm about to say next, understand that I large I, I probably caught what folks are not listing as his best work. Here's my top line. You guys know that I've said on this show that I believe that Joe Biden is going to run for president again in 2024. I don't think that you spend your entire life trying to get to the mountaintop just so you can seat it. I, I think that you want to be a two-term president because everybody who's president wants to be a two-term president. Tonight was the first night that I thought that that's not going to be the case. Not necessarily because Joe Biden has any lack of determination to do it, but because I think that he is in a position now where he might be primaried. The issue is not necessarily that he did a good or bad job. Look, the Biden of it all is kind of priced in at this point. He slurs, he stumbles over words, he looks and sounds older than dirt. My Vibe sommelier, super sensitive palate detected this. A, he ran in in uh, Usain Bolt speed through a ton of legislative priorities that he knows will not get done. Why? Because he's scared that the people that support those and the media that has yelled and stomped their feet about how important they were would yell at them if he did not mention these doomed bills. He spent the vast majority of his time talking up very, very, very safe bipartisan targets. Veterans, opioids, cancer. Now, while you might, and I think it is fair to say, well, oh, okay, he's look, he's he's learning. He he pushed for something incredibly progressive last year when he did his joint speech with Congress. Uh, that's where he laid out the multi-trillion-dollar Build Back Better bills that eventually hit the rocks. And now he's doing something safer. But at the same time, if you're not going to fight from underneath, yes, he's got terrible approval ratings. Yes, his last legislative year was an absolute unmitigated disaster, at least for the priorities that he had laid out for himself. But either you fight or what's the point? If he's not going to push something that is uniquely democratic, if he is not going to push something that divides the Republican Party, then what's the point of you? Anybody can do the bipartisan thing. It takes vision and leadership and a connection with the people 
to move things in a specific direction. So my point isn't that the bipartisan stuff is bad. I think it's good. And to be totally honest with you, in another universe, if Joe Biden had led his administration with this kind of stuff, I think he would have had more of a bully pulpit uh, 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 to push forth some of the more progressive causes that he wanted or his party wanted. But he never demonstrated a control over his party. And now he's basically just surfing between two very, 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 very divided sects of, of, of both houses of Congress. Bad vibes. Just really, really, really bad vibes. All right. With that, uh, uh, full disclosure at the point that I'm publishing this because I don't want it to get too late after uh, the, the State of the Union. I want you guys to be able to have this ASAP. Uh, we are going to read the latest of the uh, uh, Texas primary results. Uh, first and foremost, let's rack up our governor's race. It is indeed going to be Greg Abbott versus Beto O'Rourke. But the races down ballot are particularly interesting, including the attorney general, Ken Paxton, Somebody that uh, somebody that uh, just made uh, a ton of news because of a very, very, very out there ruling on a, a transgender law. He needed to get over 50 percent in a very crowded uh, race for attorney general. It looks like he might come in under that. And it looks like the person that will play second is George P. Bush, son of Jeb. Meanwhile, the other race that we covered here on this show that I wanted to highlight for you guys was Henry Cuellar versus Jessica Cisneros. I've mispronounced both of their names a million times, so apologies to both. But it looks right now that Cisneros has a lead. It's a, it's a thin lead. It's like under a thousand votes, but it is a lead nonetheless. However, as I'm talking to you right now, that is also under 50%, which means it would go into a head-to-head runoff. Obviously, those are extraordinarily close and they are changing, but I did want to get you guys my State of the Union thoughts uh, uh, before too long. So we're going to run this episode. The rest of the episode uh, uh, has stuff that obviously doesn't, include the information that I'm giving you right now. Let's start that. The following is brought to you by Will Harris, Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, and Craig. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for March 2nd, 2022. It's your old pal, Justin Robert Young. Uh, This is a weird episode, so before you uh, heard this, you probably heard my snap opinions about the State of the Union and results as we have them. 
uh, for the Texas primaries, which happened last night. But there is a lot of global consequence that is happening that is not those two things, which is why the vast majority of this episode will be about other things. And, you know, because also I want to do it for you guys on time. We're going to talk about Ukraine, which, again, is the only story worth covering right now. A land war in Europe that has entered in a very, very grim phase. Beyond the shock of it happening, beyond the excitement that Ukraine seemed to be showing resolve, there is a dawning reality that doesn't have a lot of outcomes that'll make people feel good. We will get into that as well as some of the global consequences that are already being felt because of the sanctions that we have put on Russia. We will then talk about a growing rift in the GOP Senate. You know... This is a group of men that are measuring the uh, measuring the furniture for leadership, as it were, metaphorically. We have Mitch McConnell and somebody who possibly wants to replace Mitch McConnell. Rick Scott, senator from Florida, a former governor there. Somebody for whom has been very friendly to Donald Trump that Donald Trump reportedly said he would prefer to see as the Senate majority leader. Those two are at odds. And uh, old cocaine Mitch took a measure in his own hands that he does not normally take by publicly rebuking Rick Scott for releasing an agenda for the uh, uh, GOP Senate that he didn't agree with. There's there's some interesting stuff in there. We'll, We'll get to that in a second. And then finally, uh, uh, guys, (laughs) you're going to have to buckle up for this interview today. You're going to have to buckle up because, you know, there's a lot of historical retrospectives that I have seen in the ether since Russia invaded Ukraine. Some of them talk about 2014. Some of them go as far back as the Soviet Union. Some of them go uh, even further to, uh, you know, old Russian history. But I'm going to tell you guys right now that if we are to get in a time machine and we are to go back into time, we we, we are going to go back as far as we possibly can. Our guest today has written a book about traditionalism and by traditionalism i i don't mean you know like you know a, a family traditions like the song says no no i mean capital t traditionalism it will be explained but the book that our our guest is talking about explains that concept how elemental it truly is and and philosophically it is truly the battle for time itself and how it has bubbled up into populist movements both 
in the United States and Brazil, but as we'll spend the most of our time talking in Russia as well. How that specifically relates to Ukraine. You know, I'm I'm curious your guys' opinion on this one because it is heady. It is heady, but I very much enjoyed talking to him. But first. As my gilded voice hits your gracious eardrums, we are one week from Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Here's her status report. No major Ukrainian cities have fallen as I am recording this at 3.46 Central Time on Tuesday afternoon. But many are on the brink. Putin's military push has been a shambling one, and yet there are many, many, many more Russian troops yet to deploy. There is a nominal negotiation about peace that began over the weekend and has been going on in earnest since. But in an interview with CNN, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky did not sound optimistic. They decided they decided uh, to begin to speak about this situation. And I wanted, I, I really wanted, and I asked them, so you have to speak, first of all, you, everybody has to stop, stop fighting, and to go to that point from w- where it, it was beginning. Yep. Yes, it began five, six, today six, six days ago. Yes. I think th- there are principal things you can do it, and that is very important moment. If you'll do this, and if those side is ready, it means that they are ready for the peace. If they don't ready, it means that you're just, you know, just mm, how, wasting, your time. wasting time. And do you think you're wasting your time, or do you think they're ready? We'll see. Meanwhile, whether or not they have gone as far as some have wanted, sanctions against Russia are beginning to have their ripple effect on the worldwide markets. Oil rocketed past $100 a barrel on Tuesday in the United States, even after the federal government announced a sizable release of emergency oil stockpiles. U.S. crude surged 8% to close at 103 or $103.41 a barrel, closing above $100 for the first time since July 2014, marking the biggest uh, that the oil market has jumped in a one-day gain since November 2020, you know, back when there was the COVID. At its highs of the day, crude spiked as much as 11.6% to 106 Dollars and seventy-eight cents a barrel, the highest intraday level since June 2014. The uh, world benchmark for oil gained eight percent to around a hundred and five. You know, for for all of the casual dismissal that we can do on Twitter about sanctioning oil and gas, there is a reality to this that is is beyond just boo hoo. You won't get to fill your Hummer for cheap. Gas is the operating system that runs our world. The more it costs, 
the more everything will cost. And with inflation already a problem, this will only make it worse. And yet, right now, we are doing it for a cause that the vast majority of Americans agree in. Or sorry, agree with 70% at last that I checked. Now, will that hold for all these countries that have imposed these sanctions? How will the mood change if this incursion lasts weeks? What about months? To maintain that heat and make sure that. There is continued pressure on Russia until they acquiesce to the will of the rest of the free world. The U.S. has to remain in concert with both NATO countries and EU countries. That is effectively the Western world. During an off-the-record lunch with TV anchors before his State of the Union address last night, Joe Biden sought to hammer that point home. Here's Jake Tapper on CNN, remember. Asked what we could share with the American people, President Biden said something, and I'm paraphrasing here, but this is pretty close, something along the lines of my determination to see to it that the EU, that's the European Union, NATO, and all of our allies are on the same exact page in terms of sanctions against Russia and how we deal with the invasion of Ukraine, and it is an invasion. It's the one thing that gives us the power, the unity of NATO, and the West. And that, that was uh, what he thought was the most important thing. I'm not a military expert, so please do not take anything that I say as the absolute truth when it comes to anything in terms of strategy. But from my perspective, there seems to be an ever-darkening grim reality that we are beginning to face here. Russia's got a bigger military they can rattle chains that you can that Ukraine simply cannot. Specifically, nuclear weapons. Now, Ukraine can make this push ugly. Ukraine can make this push slow. Ukraine can defend themselves to the point where Russia has to start doing things that are uglier, more violent, and more dangerous than they would like. And indeed, enforcing. That's those specific actions. You are beginning to push Russia into a position where war crime and war criminal is something that is said more often. Possibly by people that can actually do something about it. But yet, even if Ukraine has the world on its side. The reality is that no nuclear power is going to engage with another nuclear power in open warfare. Ukraine is on its own, even if we send all the money and weapons that we can. And by the way, we're already seeing the limits of the military aid that has been promised. After Ukraine announced that EU would be lending them fighter jets, the country set to lend them balked at the request. Specifically, Poland, Bulgaria, and Slovakia. The creeping reality is dawning that Russia isn't going to stop until Kiev has fallen. 
and absent direct military intervention that might escalate a nuclear war, the locals might not be able to stop them. What we will see in the intervening time is likely not for the squeamish. And yet, it will happen all the same. Oh, boy, let's talk about chuckleheads in D.C., huh? Jeez, Louise. Oh, serious stuff. All right. Senate Minority Leader, Mitch McConnell. Decided to uh, 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 show somebody who's boss today in public leveling criticism at Senator Rick Scott of Florida. He is the chair of the National Republican Senatorial Committee. Specifically because of this. All right, so here's what happens with Scott. Uh, Scott is the one who is the head of giving Republicans money when they are running for the Senate. This is something that's very important as the Republicans are the minority party. They want to be the majority party. They need to win the races. Bop, 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 bop. Well, a few things are happening. Number one, there is a grand schism in, in the Republican Party, specifically amongst elected, uh, elected officials on Donald Trump. Mitch McConnell doesn't like him. Uh, Donald Trump has made Mitch McConnell uh, one of his enemies. And so Donald Trump is very, very loud about people that will either get elected and force McConnell out or somebody that will replace Mitch McConnell. One of those people is Rick Scott. So you would think that this is a bit of a problem. The man who will be, if, if you know, some of these things hold with approval ratings, Mitch McConnell is going to be the Senate majority leader by the end of this year. You would think he should be on the same page with Rick Scott. And yet, because Joe Biden has been so abysmal in his approval rating, it doesn't appear like there's a lot of urgency for them to be on the same page. And so here's the inciting incident. Rick Scott releases an 11-point platform for how Republicans should run in 2022. This was something that a lot of Republicans did not particularly like. It includes things like term limits, which, by the way, would take away at least one Republican seat in Chuck Grassley. So, after some behind-the-scenes sniping that Scott overstepped his bounds, old cocaine Mitch decided to put it in plain English and on the record. Quote, if we're fortunate to have the majority next year, I'll be the majority leader. I'll decide in consultation with my members what we put on the floor. And let me tell you what's not going to be part of our agenda. We will not have as part of our agenda a bill that raises taxes on half the American people and sunset Social Security and Medicare within five years. That will not be part of a Republican Senate majority agenda. We will focus instead on what the American people are concerned about. Inflation, energy, defense, the border and crime. 
This is the most uh, public sparring between Senate leadership. So let's 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 make a, a real clear distinction here. This isn't a bunch of people in the House fighting with each other. There's a billion House representatives, right? Many people in their own party don't even know each other's second, they're, they're, know each other's middle name, let alone, uh, uh, you know, like each other. They, they probably fight all the time. They do fight all the time. We cover it here. Republicans are not like other Republicans. Democrats cannot like other Democrats. There's only 50 senators. Right now we're in a fifth, sorry, there's only a hundred senators. There's only uh, 50 Republicans and 50 Democrats. So subdivide that by the handful of people. We're talking four or five that really make the calls in leadership in the Senate. And you've got two of them in Rick Scott and Mitch McConnell. Not since John Boehner and Eric Cantor have we seen this kind of fight in the GOP. But again, what's looming here is particularly interesting. There is no doubt that Rick Scott was egged into this particular uh, 11-point plan by either Donald Trump himself or people around Donald Trump. That's assured. McConnell knows that. Donald Trump raises money on Mitch McConnell's name nearly every day. If you follow his listserv, uh, uh, you will see him complain about the old crow, Mitch McConnell, nearly every single day. Man sends like four or five emails a day. Although most of them these days are just links to other stories. The fact that Mitch came out and asserted his dominance is particularly interesting. But none of this matters unless the Republicans run good campaigns. They win their races, specifically in Arizona, Nevada, Georgia, possibly New Hampshire, which at this point looks good for them. Because Biden's approval rating is is in the tank. Something to keep an eye on. Ladies and gentlemen, you can head on over to our Patreon. uh, That is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. I know a lot of you guys have done it over the last few weeks. I, I very, very, very much appreciate your guys' faith in me to cover these kind of world events, uh, largely because I, I, you know, I'm only doing my best. With stuff like this, look, but when it gets into campaign strategy and stuff like that, I, I feel like I've got a natural intuition. I don't with this stuff, which means I actually have to work for it. <laughs> I actually have to look stuff up. I actually have to to be kind of on top of it, which is really annoying because if I wanted to do that, I could still be a reporter. I tried to get into this pundit game so I could not do work. And yet, because you guys want it, because you guys ask for it, I, I am I am no no joking around, honored that you would uh support me more during this time because you would like my insights. And so again. Our Patreon, TakePoliticsSeriously.com. At the $3 level, you get two bonus episodes each and every week. 
At the $10 level, you get your name read at the end of the show. So, head on over there right now. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. Obviously, folks, there has been a lot of coverage about Ukraine. Some have looked into the past to understand the present. Reexaminations of the 2014 regime change, dissections of the Soviet Union, and much more. In reality, I can do my best to summarize the Wikipedias like everyone else, or we can try and look even deeper. Beyond modern history, to something beyond even the written word. Our guest today is Benjamin Teitelbaum. His new book is called The War for Eternity, The Return of Traditionalism and the Rise of the Populist Right. And let me just tell you this. If by listening to that title, you think you have any idea what it is about, please keep listening. Because the scope and context of these ideas are far beyond, in my opinion, modern labeling. Welcome to the show, Benjamin. It's great to be with you, Justin. Whenever I don't know something, which I don't know a lot about what is happening right now in Ukraine, so there is there's a lot, a lot to kind of uh, uh, sort of educate myself on. I try to strip it down as bare as I can, so we're not building off of false pretenses or modern interpretations of stuff. And that's why when you were uh, you and your book were recommended to me, The War for Eternity, it really struck a chord because what your book really dives into is something elemental, the 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 rise and attraction to traditionalism versus uh, modernity. and and I think that that's about. I mean, these are probably arguments that were had in, in among the most ancient civilizations. So let's just start there. What is traditionalism? What is tradition? And and I have to give you, I have to give you a quick compliment, Justin, on, on your being willing to say that you, there's so much you don't understand about this moment. It gives me a lot more confidence <laughs> about speaking with you. I wish more people had that attitude. What is traditionalism? Um, it sounds familiar. I wish it had a different name to let us know how strange it was, but this is uh, originally a religious school rather than a political philosophy or theory that uh, became a political theory and started to become a political philosophy in uh, really in World War II. But it begins with the belief that uh, the truth about the universe, about history, about society uh, was actually entirely contained in a religious practice, the tradition, capital T, that, that used to exist in the world. And as time has gone on, it has been forgotten. It's essential, inherent, authentic truths were scattered, bastardized, and now exist in piecemeal fashion in a select number of religious faiths. Um, usually okay, the esoteric- hold, hold, if, if I get, if I get, if I get stopped there. So, so where, sure. where are we talking about time-wise in terms of this being <laughs> a, a, a coherent religious philosophy? Who knows before writing before. Okay. So this is, this is before, before uh, all, all the befores uh, at some yes. point, which I would assume, uh, and, and I'll, I'll just put a pin in this and maybe we can go back leads us to the idea of exactly it's, it's existence in the way that we remember it being a reality, uh, uh, you know, at, at all. Right. 
Yes. Right. I mean, we don't, we don't have any active memory of it. The, the only, the most helpful thing I've heard some of these thinkers say is that, well, when we saw the advent of writing, the purpose of writing was to record what had been forgotten. Gotcha. And prior to that, um, it, when you were living in a, in a, in a better age, no one forgot anything. So they didn't need writing. Um, anyways, so that, uh, a fall takes place. You have a lapse. Uh, the tradition starts to be forgotten. It scatters. And all that you can do today is through comparative religious study uh, and also devoting yourself to one religious practice that's approved, you might catch a glimpse of what once was. All right. So okay. and the religious practices they like are, you know, Hinduism, Sufism, esoteric Catholicism, East Orthodoxy, those uh, those mystic esoteric branches of some major religions. Now, probably none of this sounds like politics, though, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you know, from 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 my perspective, I can I can see it from here, but uh, it is certainly okay. it is certainly on 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 the horizon, and I would assume for folks, unless you are thinking about it from a modern perspective of like religious fundamentalism uh, playing mm -hmm. into conservatism, which even then is very much you know a modern invention, at least here in in America over the last thirty to forty years. Uh, uh, the the intersection of faith and politics is something that is is uh, uh, I mean I don't know I I would say there's probably a very rich tradition of it but in our modern world we don't necessarily think of it as the rule it is it is the the exception or and a signifier. Well, let me start because there actually is something a, a bit more specific embedded okay. in what I've already explained. There is an inherent pessimism to the story that I just told. And, and, it, mm -hmm. and it might have just gone past us here, but um, without without saying much more, we can say that, hey, things used to be better. Yeah. Right? Yeah, <laughs> you can sure. Put a headline on everything I just said. Okay, the, the people that we're talking about think things used to be better. Um, but there's more than that. What are the actual truths that were lost? One of them, which ends up being important to politics, is the concept of cyclic time. The notion that we are not, in fact, moving away from something irretrievably, that we're going to go into some future that is definitively different from where we were in the past. That's a sort of modern way of thinking. And, and in general, uh, a linear way of thinking about time to th is, is embedded in the concept of progress um, as well. The notion that we are coming away from a past of injustice, inequity, unfairness, oppression, mm -hmm. and through human reason and through human organization and industry, we can make a better life for ourselves in the future than what we had in the past. The past is something to be overcome. That way of thinking um, is opposed also by traditionalism and with its belief in cyclic time. Traditionalists believe that human history has proceeded through a cycle of four ages, broadly speaking, um, a golden age, which proceeds to a silver age, to a bronze into a dark, after which a cataclysmic event resets us in a golden age. So, um, yes, things used to be better um, in, in the near term, in, in a short-sighted understanding of history, but traditionalists actually don't believe in time. They don't believe okay. that we ever, ever are actually escaping and ever leaving what we were, because what we were is what we are going to become. And so this, I guess, when when you put it that way, certainly from a religious perspective, is something in, you know, akin to the idea of of 
a a a a rapture or or a return, you know, of where, you know, like like there is going to be a cataclysmic event and now all of a sudden things are going to be better mm-hmm. for us than they have ever been before, whether or not it is on earth or in heaven. Uh go ahead. actually it, those are very, very important distinctions there because okay. Christianity, what you're talking about there is a sort of mix of this in linear thinking. Um, because in Christianity, we actually get a rapture in a heavenly home that is not the same as where we were. Gotcha. Right? Past in Christianity is sin. The future is salvation. The folks that I'm talking about do not think in those terms. Gotcha. We are always coming back to the beginning. We are always, there is always going to be a reset at which point it will descend, 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 descend until it resets. Yes. Which means the best we can be is something that we have already been. This is, it is at a generic, a structural, a deep structural level, uh, the antithesis to progress and, and very unfamiliar to most Modern Western liberals, lowercase l, so mm-hmm. that encompasses the mainstream yep. left and right in, let's say, the United States, and to Christians, and to Jews, and to Muslims. This is a different way, a different way of thinking, um, uh, really about time. And there are a lot of political consequences just to what I've said right there. Yes, uh, among them is a, a divestment, a disavowal of the typical political need to build something. And to improve and to develop and to progress. All of those are non-starters in this way of, of thinking that I'm describing. So uh, uh, if, if we now have that in, in our, in our you know, uh, obviously very, very threadbare fortune cookie definition of, of traditionalist thinking, capital T traditionalist mm-hmm. thinking, which is that the best we've ever been is yesterday. We're only getting worse every tomorrow. Uh, and then eventually mm-hmm. we're going to hit a big reset button then you would imagine that diametrically opposed to that on some level is a Western philosophy, very much for here in America, born out of the Enlightenment, which was all about the Dark Ages were yesterday. Tomorrow's going to be better than yesterday. We are going to keep building and building and building. And here in America specifically, uh, uh, you know, I, I like to joke that our, our, our self-loathing complex is truly our superpower in terms of identifying our problems and trying to uh, make them better, if even it's just by our own hand-wringing. Yes. Uh, so that I would assume would be diametrically opposite to to the traditionalist thinking, which I guess brings us into our modern question. Yes. Where does this bubble up either in on the sides or or in the center of this world that was not built for traditionalist thinking in 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 the west mm-hmm. or in our modern world? Uh where does this thinking bubble up? It bubbles up f- first in the rejection of of liberalism's universality and the belief that democracy, human rights, universal human rights, progress are the end of history, the destiny of all of, of humankind. That's one way. Another way that it, that it blows up can be xenophobia, um, but also the will to disassemble large political entities. If that is, you know, in quotation marks, the global capital system. Sure. Um, if it is the European Union, if it is the United States, if it is any any larger administrative entity um, uh, that is under under attack to to be disassembled, uh, that can all be taking place through these through these ideas. In order to explain that, though, Justin, I'd have to add one little piece about traditionalism. Please go ahead. We can't yeah. cover that that whole philosophy, but there are a couple things we need. I haven't said what it is that is good and what is that ba- that is bad. 
what that dark age is that's going to return us to a golden age and what makes the golden age gold. The way that traditionals think about that, they look also to older religions uh, and see, let's say, in Hinduism, which is usually the religion that that they see as as having contained the most of uh, the, of that ancient ancient insight. They see an ideal, a caste hierarchy, an ideal social order, um, where at the very top you have the Brahmins, a priestly caste. Uh, on, uh, they they sit above Kshetras, um, the uh, the warrior caste, who are themselves on top of merchants, who are on top of slaves um, at the at the lowest caste. A couple things about that hierarchy: one is that slaves who simply traffic in their own bodies, who just do physical work and nothing else, you contrast them with the Brahmins, and we see that that hierarchy is an ordering, a preference of the spiritual and the immaterial above the material, the body, and above that, people who work with money, with goods. Um, And so that's one ideal, is that in the golden age, spiritual pursuits and immaterial values are the foremost values. Okay. Oh, and, and material values and quantity, um, quantity is, is, uh, and, and materiality are the values of the dark age. That's what is, is bad in which will break into good. The second point is with that hierarchy, you can, there, there are lots of traditionalists who put other things in this, talk about how there's a racial difference between the, the slaves and the Brahmins. The Brahmins are, are Aryan. The slaves are Semitic or non-Aryan. Brahmins are masculine in their, in their disposition. Slaves are, uh, are are feminine slaves worship the ground, whereas the Brahmins worship the sun and, and the sky. But uh, a thing not to mix, uh, not to miss for traditionalists is that they also believe that as the time circle time cycle turns, that the hierarchy itself disintegrates and everyone falls down. Uh, what what happens in that process is not just the rise of materiality and uh, quantification and massification, bigger, bigger communities, but mm. also the loss of boundaries, also the loss of, uh, you know, what we would think first in a hierarchical sense of vertical boundaries, distinctions between different castes in a society where there are real borders between people that are honored, let's say. Yeah. And, but the, the wider principle um, is that when you get to the dark age, uh, you don't see borders of any kind. Men and women fuse together. Gender differences fade away. Cultural differences, ethnic, racial, um, national differences. And yeah. instead, you just see a mass a mass society. For the traditionalist, and this is where we get to where we are today, the goal is to see a breakdown of all that. If you want to hasten the golden age, you need to take the society that has been massified or equalized, divide it up into small parts, enchant it, create theocracies. Um, and, and by doing those sorts of things, you can find yourself in uh, perhaps advancing the time cycle. So, so hastening the end would not be moving the, the, the issues forward would not be moving uh, all of the communities together, but rather is, 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 is the cataclysm, the, the preparation for the new golden age. And this is it's a heck of a question. I don't want to get in the weeds too much. Sure. For, for a lot of traditionalists for many years, what you're talking about is accelerationism. Gotcha. Uh, under, yeah. under a version of it. And they would have said that, you know, yes, you know what? We should actually hasten democracy or communism, these mass egalitarian 
uh, materialistic movements so that we actually move into the dark age more deeply and thereby get ourselves closer to a golden age. But the figures active today seem to think a little differently. They don't, they don't operate with the same dogmatism and instead think manifestly based on their behavior that they can create and mimic the aspects of what ancient religious uh, teachers thought was virtuous and righteous. Create a, a golden age, even if it's artificially done. Now, before we get into the application in in some of the the modern political uh, systems that that you highlight in your book, I have to ask this question: When we say the traditionalists, are we referring to specific people who would say, "Hi, I'm Tom. I'm I'm a traditionalist," <laughs> or are are we looking at a, a this philosophy that has changed and evolved and mutated and finds itself in different applications. It, it's possible to find people who call themselves card carrying traditionalists. Yeah. But this is a philosophy without a political party, without yeah. a, a, an actual Bible, without an institutional or organizational base. This is, this is a set of ideas that, that saturate and combine with other ideas for people who are actually acting and they don't need to, sanctify themselves as being a traditionalist. They, they, they will do whatever they want. So it's really, um, for my purposes, I, I, I use the term traditionalist, but it, it's a sort of, uh, rhetorical necessity just to not get, get people lost. But these, sure. uh, having said that one of the figures that I've, I've focused on quite closely, Olavo de Carvalho, who's a Brazilian, uh, late Brazilian advisor to president Bolsonaro. Um, he was initiated into an actual traditionalist, sect or cult okay, um, that recognized a sort of lineage to, to some of the first thinkers. Um, Alexander Dugan, uh, a prominent philosopher in Russia, uh, he tried to create institutes and schools honoring the, the original thinkers. Steve Bannon, uh, former advisor to President Trump, he was never part of any organization, but he in, engaged socially and institutionally, um, not institutionally, but, but, but socially, um, throughout, gosh, this would be the past three decades, um, with, uh, people in the, in the general traditionalist sphere. So it's not as though we're talking about people just staying at home and reading a book. You can, you know, people have books on their shelves that express ideas that they, that they don't identify sure. with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, but these are the people, if I call them a traditionalist is because they've, They've not only read, but they've admired. They've not only admired, but they have acted, socialized, networked, strategized with other traditionalists, and finally tried to act, framed their own actions as political um, animals, as having been inspired and following following the the uh, guidelines of traditionalism. You know, we we say on this show that you know politics is in reality beyond all of your all all of the conversation around it and all the important issues for which we discuss while uh, somebody's running for office. It is in reality a contest for which a on a pre-selected day you get more people into a booth to hit your button than the other guy gets into a booth to hit their button, and with that, mm -hmm. the motivation of people is the chief thing that you can do in, and especially in the context that you are referring to here when you're looking at national politics. So, mm. but, but before we, you know, it, it, it is interesting to me that from your perspective, they would look at, okay, well, here is something ancient, something that, that, you know, has been motivating people for longer than, than the buildings we see longer than the languages we speak longer than the books that we read. Uh, uh, so if, if, 
what we understand now as an elemental way to move people to the polls is powerful. Uh, uh, this should be the, this is the, this is the mother tongue. This is, this is, uh, uh, something that is, that, that is beyond even, even comprehension. Yes. It, Here's the here's the key distinction. You were you you gave I think an, an excellent description of of the problems and the challenges and the game plan facing a, a politician mm-hmm. standing for election. Yeah, the figures who I have focused on, who all in, in in varying ways could be described as traditionalists, they none of them are politicians standing for election. None of them are themselves out campaigning with their own voice to yeah. build political consensus to get people to go into the booths. Instead, they are at most official advisors, Rasputin figures behind the, uh, and, and I should stress this, behind a public politician who they do not uh, evangelize to uh, yeah. about their spiritual beliefs, who, the, who they are not actually trying to convince also to become traditionalists. Donald Trump would not, I think his eyes would glo- glaze over in seconds, if you heard this stuff, you would not yeah. be interested. Um, same thing with Bolsonaro. Putin, pr- probably not either, but um, but that's where the greatest chance of it is. Instead, instead, these figures have found ways to advance their vision of the world, of society and history through political causes that happen to overlap with traditionalism. And it and it does happen that that uh, that let's say the populist movement or the anti-liberal or anti-Western cause. Uh, all of these do have uh, a lot of resonances with traditionalism. So you you can operate within them without identifying and describing the cause as traditionalist or esoteric religion um, and and still feel that you're advancing your own agenda. So let's get into uh, uh, your, your, your writing about Dugan then as we look to understand uh, or get some kind of context as to what is happening currently in in Ukraine. How does this philosophy play out in terms of his advising of Vladimir Putin? And and when did that start? His, uh, we don't know much about his direct advising of, of Vladimir Putin. What we know about Dugan is that he has cultivated for years uh, an ideological stream in Russia. And he has done so at, at times in public. Um, but but often through literature that he has written that has been assigned to the military elite um, that was studied in, in, in Russia's main military academies uh, for quite a while. He also had some some formal appointments um, for for members of the Duma and and quite uh, I would say quite significantly for anybody who would want to to dismiss him as 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 irrelevant. He also shows up as a sort of diplomat for the Russian state in really tense areas. Um, if that is during the conflict with Syria and Turkey, when, when a Russian jet was, was, uh, shot down. Um, if it is during the Chechen wars, Alexander yeah. Dugan has been, has, has participated in that anyway. So and his, his ideas have to, to the extent that they, they have influenced Russia, you have to think about a wider, um, administrative and military complex and community. And you have to know also that just as we were saying before, it's it's a matter oftentimes of translating these more esoteric concepts into dry realpolitik mm-hmm. that uh, that a military advisor would embrace. 
And what he's been been saying is uh, essentially that the the global hegemony of the United States, which could double for a sort of mass homogenization of liberalism, of dark mm-hmm. age materialistic liberalism, uh, has to be stopped. It has to be subdivided. It has to be contained and compartmentalized to be shown. Uh, even even in just one place, it would would show that it is not the future and the destiny of humanity. Um, and so Dugan thinks that Russia can do that, um, that it can, uh, by setting boundaries that actually matter, not just, you know, political boundaries, but ideological boundaries where liberalism, um, progressivism is, are, are stopped and thereby shown not to be universal, that Russia can do these things. Um, additionally, he, he wants to see a Russian uh, foreign policy that prioritizes something other than economics, Okay. Other than secular political values, because those are the values of a dark age, right? He wants to see spirituality, uh, culture, deeper essences, immaterial essences prioritized in the way that Russia conducts itself. Um, and in his mind, that, that also involves redrawing political boundaries so that the Russian nation, a modern construct, um, thin, vapid, might actually gain some real depth if it starts to align with uh, where it has cultural or ethnic or racial racial boundaries slash non-ethnic Russians who are allied with the greater Russian cultural sphere. So he wants to see Russia expand to those areas. I can keep going, but I'll let you. No, 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 because I want to add context to that in terms of the 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 you know political picture that we have all kind of seen uh, when this was first you know, churning up this current situation in Ukraine. Uh, my biggest question that I asked on this show and, you know, to, to myself in the mirror when I was thinking about it is why, what, what is like, like what is the, the, the reason why, why and why now uh, uh, Ukraine is, is by far, despite the fact that Putin has certainly been uh, uh, adventurous in terms of annexing things. This is easily the biggest bite. It's bigger than, Chechnya, it's bigger than than what he did in Georgia. It's bigger than than Crimea. These those were all smaller little nibbles compared to this. This is a gigantic uh, thing that that was at that time just being alleged by the State Department. And the best thing that I could find was a uh, speech he gave, and and it's uh, probably still available on on the the official Kremlin website, uh, presuming that that's accessible uh, about. A lot of what you just kind of explained that that, that there was that uh, uh, Ukraine is the Russian uh, and, and the Russian people are the same, that Ukraine has only suffered the more they have turned to the West. They have only prospered the more they have turned to the East, uh, uh, that this is all one uh, uh, people. And and in that context, which is I, I believe it was written, he, he gave the speech about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh the uh, in in that context it very much you know you read it you know here in 2022 and you're like oh he's talking about nato oh he's talking about uh, uh-huh. uh these you know issues of the day uh, uh what what you are what you are suggesting is of course not to say that that, that it's not that right yeah. but also that what he is appealing to and we've only seen more of since this has gone on as he uh, uh, you know, uh, brings up grievances of a pre-Soviet Union breaking off of of Ukraine from the Russian Federation. That uh, uh, these are these are long-standing things. These are these are uh, tribal issues for which uh, 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 go way beyond where we are right now. And 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 to put your faith in these things is is 
righteous uh, in its in its cause and and will reward yes. you. Yes. And I really like the way, I mean, in, in Putin's case, there are a lot of ideas floating around in his head and, and certainly time cycles themselves are not them. But what what gets through to him and what is being spoken by that military, um, that military elite is uh, is this notion of, of a manifest destiny, mm-hmm. uh, a, a notion that the modern world, the grid of political boundaries that we see in the world today is inherently wrong. Yeah. And. And and thin again, as I say, it's just ephemeral. It's going to wash away in the grander elapse of time. And and we and the the principle by which those lines should be rewritten, um, they go beyond secular politics. They go beyond modern conventions of you know national sovereignty and things like that. All the all these modernist principles that yeah we think of as being sacred to them the 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 youth um the lack uh the lack of of time depth for those principles means that they're wrong um and instead you look to a deeper ethno-religious connection um e- even a sort of uh federation of tribes or groups um affiliating with the russian cultural sphere that's what brings someone within their their realm of of justified coercion and, uh, and claim. All right. There's another, another point to this too. I, uh, I'm going to react to the news as best I can, as, as I'm sure a lot of your, your listeners are, but, uh, Lukashenko, the, the president of Belarus, the nominal mm-hmm. president, um, is there, a picture came out with him, you know, pointing at a map of, of Ukraine right now. And, and we see the country subdivided into four political entities. Uh-huh. Four regions, basically. Um, note that, really, with the exception of Russia, a lot of these foreign policy moves, either either by Putin or by Dugan, based on his uh, his his diplomacy, have had to do with creating a world of smaller states and smaller political entities. Recall everything I was talking about earlier about about a hierarchy and the turning of the ages that boundaries. Smaller political entities, rather than the mass sprawling state or society, the smaller situation is the ideal one. Um, yeah. Now that, that happens, that happens so conveniently to uh, also to, to to seem to reinforce a logic for for Russian military expansion and the protection of Russian power. A divided world uh, surrounding Russia is going to be much easier to control and much more difficult for the United States to mobilize. Than one that is is integrated, where you see powerful mass collaborating entities. Uh, nonetheless, it's it, it's it, it's a, a a a convenient overlap again between Russian imperialism and and some of the values of traditionalism. Uh, I'll tell you what it is. It is a fascinating idea, and, and uh, I'm I'm very very glad that you were on here to to talk about it. Uh, Benjamin Teitelbaum, your book is the war. For eternity, and it is available now. Uh, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for for, for coming on. Uh, uh, because uh, amongst all of, of 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 the chaos that that we have kind of seen over the last uh, uh, few weeks, I, I I think anything to try to get a, a a handle on it is something that everybody's going to be happy to have heard. And I appreciate your perspective. Thanks, thanks so much. Pleasure to be with you, Justin. Politics, Politics, Politics is written and hosted by me, Justin Robert Young, for Dog and Pony Show, audio in Austin, Texas. If you would like to support our guest, you can head on over to P 
letter X, number three, guest.com. If you'd like to email the show, it is theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Our Twitter is px3tweets. Our Twitch on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays is px3live, although no live stream this Friday because I'm out of town heading back to Oakland for my birthday. Gonna go see Hood Slam. It's gonna be a great time. Uh, share this podcast with your friends, family, and clergy at px3podcast.com. Politicsmerch.com for all of your PX3 merch needs. If you'd like to support us via a one-time donation, we will not turn down your money. PayPal.me slash payjury. Venmo is justin-young-20. Uh, my cash app is px3cash. And you can send anything you would like to my P.O. box. Just Write it out to your old pal, Justin Young. P.O. Box 1531-84, Austin, Texas, 78715. The only way that you can get bonus content, however, is our Patreon. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. $3 tier gets you two bonus podcasts per week, covering all the news we miss on our free podcast schedule. And the $10 tier gets your name right at the end of the podcast like these fine folks in the Titanic. $10 tier. Unsafe DB level. Idris Arslandi and DJ Katie Mack. Neemeister, Dr. G, Admiral Flapjack, Utah Jimmy Montana, Edmund Pluribus Unum, Pete Spicetti, 70s TV salesman, a spy. D, really? And Gloria Young for King of the New World Order. Zombie Doc, Edison, no mention on the podcast, please. Dotcom Junkie, DP for Bongo, Jewish Lives Matter, 100 Mile Runner, Staff Sergeant Poopers, Berkeley Steven, Diana Silent Slumbers, Katie Stetch, Adam L, Double K Ranch, Yield Pinball Shop, John, The Opposable Thumbs for Dogs Foundation, Super Zoomy, Neil, Charles, Darren, Olin and Angela, DL, Steven, Chad, Matt, Miranda, Janelle, Chief Andy, Robert, Casey, Paul, Dustin, Richard, D-Laser, just another pilot, middle-aged Mike, the Gen, J-Pink, and Andrew, you want to hear your name? Along with their names? Only one place to head. TakePoliticsSeriously.com Guys, uh, a great episode coming up for you on Friday. We are joined by the illustrious host of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, David McRaney. We're going to talk about cognitive bias and tribalism, something that he talks a lot about on his show. Till then, your old pal Justin Robert Young saying, some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics. But this, this is the only show that dares discuss. Oh, Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.